This is The Guardian. Octopuses. There's not really another animal on Earth that looks so otherworldly. The alienness of octopuses comes from their lack of joints, which gives a very strong fluidity to their movements. And yet a lot of their behaviour seems so familiar from dreaming. In order to dream, you have to be having an inner experience. And the second thing it suggests is octopuses are imaginative because the octopus is imagining something that isn't present. Two infamous escape attempts. I was once told a story of a large octopus called onto a fishing boat. One of the fishermen got into a bit of a tussle trying to handle the octopus on deck. And in the tussle, the octopus stole the man's fishing knife out of the sheath on his belt and then stabbed him in the leg with it. And as the octopus made his escape into the sea, the stabbed man could see his knife still clutched in the octopus's suckers. But as plans for the world's first commercial octopus farm in Spain's Canary Islands steam ahead, scientists have been left wondering whether the welfare of these highly intelligent and complex creatures can be protected. So, what makes octopuses weird and wonderful? What do we have in common with them? And is it possible to create an ethical octopus farm? From The Guardian, I'm Madeleine Finlay, and this is Science Weekly. Nicola Davis, as a science correspondent at The Guardian, you recently wrote an article exploring the captivating world of octopuses after speaking to David Scheel, a professor of marine biology at Alaska State University, and he spent decades studying octopuses. And we're going to be hearing some of that conversation later. But first, it's interesting that humans do seem to have a real curiosity about these animals, don't we? Yeah, we do. And if we look at literature and at tradition, we can really see that octopuses crop up time and again. Uh, in Hawaiian mythology, there's a deity there which is symbolized by the squid or the octopus. You've got sort of Scandinavian stories of the kraken, you know, this sea monster that terrifies mariners and you know, even more modern sources. You see play often in social animals. Here's a highly antisocial animal playing with fish. That Netflix documentary, you know, My Octopus Teacher, with the guy who spent time with his octopus. And of course, let's not forget here, you know, Paul, the psychic <laughs> octopus. You know, it was a 2010 World Cup, I think, where he was predicting, allegedly predicting the outcomes of matches. He has successfully picked the winner of all of Germany's World Cup matches so far. His handlers have turned him into an international media phenomenon. And I think all of that is partly down to the kind of otherworldly appearance of these creatures. So you, you look at an octopus and it's got, you know, eight arms, these big eyes, and then this huge thing that looks like a head. It looks like an enormous, you know, so almost like a cartoon brainy bodge, you know, it's huge bonds. But that's not its head. That's the mantle. That's actually where most of its organs and whatnot are. So its stomach and its anus and all sorts. So it, this kind of body plan is very, very different to our own. That is one of the reasons why it kind of captivates us. And if you were to design an animal as different as possible to humans, you kind of can't imagine coming up with anything other than an octopus. 
And you were speaking to David because he's written a book, Many Things Under a Rock, which explores his long scientific exploration of this creature. But it has also come out at a time when we need to assess the science that we have on octopuses as a Spanish multinational company plans to begin farming them. So tell me a little bit more about that. Yeah, so I mean, obviously, people have eaten octopuses for a very long time. They get caught in the wild and eaten. And in some cultures, that's quite an important foodstuff. But there has been this desire amongst some to farm octopuses. And that's always been quite a difficult pursuit for lots and lots of reasons. If you put too many octopuses together, they can cannibalise each other. They're not a social species. Uh, And there are all sorts of challenges with raising them. And then there's all sorts of ethical issues around that as well. The more we look at octopuses, the more we learn about how they interact with the world and what they as a species are capable of. So they fall under the UK government's recent animal welfare sentience bill, where they were among the animals classed as being sentient. So that sort of implies that they have this ability to feel pain and distress, harm, also good emotions. I say emotions, that's possibly not the right word, but they can experience sort of things like uh, pleasure. I mean, there's a lot of concern about how we farm traditional farm animals. So then you know, should we be trying to do this to octopuses? I think that there's sort of just a lot of questions that it raises and a lot of concern around the knock-on effects and ramifications of that and then the impact on the animals themselves. So it's it's a very controversial area. And we're going to come back and talk a little bit more about farming octopuses, but let's go back to the octopus itself because there's so much about this creature, which is just quite incredible really, isn't there? The more I read in this book, the more I kind of just found myself kind of going, wow, <laughs> or sort of shouting out to, you know, friends and family, did you know? You know, and it definitely is that kind of thing. I mean, octopuses, like I said, their biology, just looking at them externally, are kind of weird looking creatures. And if you look inside, it gets weird as well. They've got three hearts. <laughs> the way they have sex is weird. You know, they don't get up close and personal exactly like humans do. In fact, they kind of do it at arm's length because octopuses can be cannibalistic. And if you've got a big female and a small male, that puts the male at quite high risk. And so the way that reproduction happens is that males have a kind of modified arm so that it can transfer little packets of sperm from the male, which it then sort of tucks up into the female's uh, mantle cavity. And there's more strange things about their tentacles as well, because it doesn't seem like they're similar to our arms, you know, controlled from one central place, but they're they're almost doing their own thing. First of all, they're not like our arms. They don't have bones in them. They're these sort of like just jelly wobbly type things. But also what's fascinating is that the tentacles really do do their own thing. David was saying he was standing on a a dock with a a friend of his and there'd been this uh, octopus that had been prepared for dinner. So the, the tentacles had been cut off and put in a bucket. The arms had been freshly severed in preparation for a meal, as you say. And then as we were standing there for some time chatting, each arm began to crawl out of the bucket. And they do this because First of all, they don't die immediately. There's enough oxygen and in the tissue and, and fluids and so forth to keep them mobile. But they also do this because the movement of the suckers relative to each other is not coordinated by the central brain, as we might imagine in a, in a human, for example. Instead, it's coordinated within each arm. 
And it just so happens in octopuses that the default, if it isn't suppressed by the brain, which it normally is, the default is to pass things towards the mouth. So one sucker will latch onto something, bend towards the neighbor sucker closer to the mouth, and then let go. And the sucker closer to the mouth will reach for it, latch onto it, and then pass it towards the next sucker closer to the mouth. So if you do that against an immobile surface, the octopus arm will crawl, tip first, away from the mouth. And, and this created that perception of all of these arms together behaving very much as they would if an intact octopus was trying to escape. And on top of all of that, tentacles can grow back. Yeah, I mean, there are instances in the animal kingdom of um, animals being able to regrow body parts. This is something that really does seem quite amazing. It doesn't always grow back terribly well. You don't always get the same beautiful tentacle you started out with, but it can work. And it's something I asked David about. They do seem able to regrow their arms. When an arm is severed in a fight with an eel or something like that, the arm can regrow over time. The stump will close off. The, the animal is able to stop the bleeding with its own muscular contraction. And then again, using muscles in the arm, they're able to pull the skin down over the wound. And that wound will gradually heal. It can regrow fully, but very often we'll see sort of a thick base of the arm out a quarter of the way or to wherever the original injury is. And then a very tiny new arm starting to grow out of that stump. And one of the other things that they do, which is the color changes, it is this kind of chameleon-like property. How do they do that? I mean, in the book, you say that a day octopus can change color three times a minute when it's moving. I mean, that's astonishing. Yes, octopuses can change their skin color, but they can also change the pattern and the texture and their body posture. And so they have evolved to mimic really common patterns in their environment such as the highlights on coral fingers for the tropical octopuses or the color and appearance of, of the uh, kelp for the cold water octopuses. And this allows them sort of fantastic abilities of camouflage and misdirection. They do it all by using uh, tiny muscles in the skin that control uh, chromatophores, which are cells that function basically like little bags of pigment. And they can either spread those little bags out so all the pigment is visible or allow the bags to sort of hang closed and so that what's under those chromatophores can actually be seen. And under the chromatophores, they have sort of reflective layers of skin and diffusive layers that can either reflect the ambient color or diffuse the light so that they reflect just kind of a white color. And so that gives the octopuses this ability to um, very quickly, as fast as we can lift a finger or gesture with our hands, they can change their color and their, and their appearance. Octopuses being able to change their color and change the patterns that are on them and almost as if they can change the structure of their skin to create these these shapes. It is just absolutely incredible. Nicola, you mentioned earlier that the UK's Animal Welfare Sentience Bill has been passed, and this includes octopuses, which means that an animal sentience committee will consider how government policy decisions take account of their welfare. So, it's important to understand how octopuses perceive and experience the world and what this means for how we treat them. 
Is that something that you chatted to David about? Yeah, it's something I put to him, particularly in light of this kind of octopus farming. It raises all sorts of questions. You know, how do you humanely kill an octopus? Should we be eating them at all? How do we reconcile the fact that they're an important part of some cultures' diets, but then should we be farming them for everybody? These are questions which kind of come as a result of thinking about octopuses, not just as sort of a foodstuff, but as something more than that, as, as sort of sentient animals. So yeah, it's something that I, I was keen to hear what he thinks about them in terms of perhaps the kind of inner experiences they might be having. Certainly octopuses are sentient in the sense of having some level of inner experience and awareness of themselves. Uh, for example, an octopus knows the difference between being hungry and searching for food or being afraid and hiding. The issue of rights is really very different, though. It's more about our own society and how we want to relate to our own world. Octopuses are not going to know whether we recognize their rights any more than they recognize rights in their prey or are accorded rights by their predators. People have to eat, but we need to be considering how are we doing things and and for whom. Are we Are we trying to feed people who really need the nourishment? Are we trying to feed a luxury product to people who are looking for something new and different? I think it's interesting as well, because the idea of farming has been so controversial, because people do recognise in octopuses, despite them being very alien, they do see something of themselves in their behaviour and intelligence. I mean, we've got the octopus teacher, the Netflix documentary, where the octopus seemed really curious and friendly with the diver. There was almost a relationship happening there, or, or seeming to. But are we just anthropomorphising here? Well, it is definitely tempting. I remember covering a recent study about octopuses that when they're den cleaning, they <laughs> scientists found that these octopuses kind of tended to lob debris and they seem to be deliberately lobbing it at other octopuses. And, you know, this idea of the moody, grumpy octopus, they, they sort of seem always sort of funny. But yeah, there is a danger of anthropomorphizing, you know, because we can't know what an octopus is thinking. They can't tell us. And so you're having to infer sort of their state from their behavior or from neurological studies. But that doesn't mean that there isn't a richness there to explore. You know, one of the recent studies I covered was on the possibility of whether octopuses might dream. So octopuses sort of have two stages of sleep, uh, quiet sleep and active sleep. And this study showed not only was active sleep, it actually was, they were actually were asleep. But that during this phase, I mean, what you see is that their limbs can twitch, their body can make other movements as well. And you get sort of flashes of different colours across the octopuses. And they looked at sort of the neural recordings of these animals and they found that uh, not only were these changes in colour of the octopuses sort of mimicking what's seen when they're awake, but also the activity in different brain regions was similar to what you see when they're awake. And, and the reason that's interesting is that that's what happens to us during REM sleep. And the reason why that is interesting is that in REM sleep, we dream. So the question then, of course, is, are the octopuses dreaming? You know, is that why their color is changing? Are they replaying something that happened to them during the day? Now, we don't know that. And this study doesn't prove that octopuses are dreaming. But it raises that question. And indeed, another study that was released in a preprint a couple of months ago now, that it looked only at one octopus, but they found this octopus when it was asleep 
sort of started moving in kind of defensive moves, like there might be a predator around. And the question was, is this octopus having a nightmare? And you can say, well, are we anthropomorphizing there? But I think by raising the question, even if we can't answer it, it makes us think about these animals in perhaps a different way. And, you know, I, I think that that makes us reconsider our place with respect to other animals and perhaps gives us a little bit more humility with how we treat the world around us. I think humans and, and octopuses, as well as other animals, share a very deep evolutionary history. And so there's a lot of commonalities there. We've sort of villainized anthropomorphizing animals on the grounds that we shouldn't assume that the human experience relates directly to the animal experience. And that's fair, but we also shouldn't assume that it doesn't. The two are not completely divorced from one another. And maybe the biggest misconception about them is that they're very different from us. And I think one of the messages I wanted to get across is that all of life, all of animal life in particular, shares a set of sort of universal goals. You, you know, as an animal, you're sort of obligated to find food, to seek shelter and find mates. And all of the animal kingdom shares these needs. And so I think the biggest misconception about octopuses might simply be a misconception about people. People are animals too. A big thanks to Nicola Davis and to David Scheel. We've put a link to Nicola's article and to David's book, Many Things Under a Rock, on the podcast webpage at theguardian.com. And that's it for today. The producer was me, Madeline Finley. The sound design was by Joel Cox. And the executive producer was Ellie Bury. We'll be back on Thursday. See you then. This is The Guardian. Thank you.